0: Welcome to Mass Ave. We are here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush.
1: And I'm Tommy Binion.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. We have an interesting show lined up today.
1: Yeah, uh, we did an interview with Bruce Klingner, who's been on the show before. He's great. Um, And Olivia Enos, who brings a totally different perspective to the North Korea issue, um, uh, specifically concerning human rights. It was a great interview.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated the additional perspective on the human rights violations in North Korea, in addition to what we've been talking about. So,
1: well, I know North Korea is on our minds. Um, there was breaking news all last week, um, rhetoric flying around, uh, you know, new revelations about North Korea's capabilities. Uh, certainly, something that uh, most Americans, in fact, probably all Americans, took notice of. I can't wait to play our listeners that interview. Uh, we also. Uh, had a a pretty tragic uh, series of events in Charlottesville over the weekend. Um, Domestic terrorism, in fact, uh, it's being called, and I think that's an appropriate word, Mm -hmm. uh, heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and, um, you know, stand behind those who have strongly condemned this attack as well.
1: Well, it's August recess here in Washington, D.C. I I understand the president's on his way to Washington this morning. Uh, He tweeted that to work on, Trade and military so, so that's interesting Congress is out of session But I did want to report This interesting fact um, On Friday So the, the, the House and Senate are They have recessed for August But they're not technically adjourned um, And so, you know the, the president isn't empowered To make recess appointments And in order to keep that scenario um, The House and Senate have to meet In what's called pro forma session Every three days So the Constitution says they can't adjourn for more than three days without the consent of the other chamber. And so they just meet and pro a session every three days. Um, and that just keeps them in session while they're off, uh, you know, on their proverbial recess. Uh, but the House passed a bill. On Friday, in the pro forma session, all the members are scattered across the country and there's the House passing a bill. Now, it was a fine bill. It's not objectionable. It's, a, it's, it's about relieving the backlog of veterans applying for disability benefits. And I think that that's a, a worthy bill. But um, they're passing bills while they're in recess. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other thing that happened on Friday, the discharge petition that the House Freedom Caucus has filed... Um, which if it got 218 signatures would bring the 2015 Obamacare repeal bill to the House floor for a vote, uh, that ripened. And so now members can start signing that. Three members of the Freedom Caucus were on the floor on Friday to affix their signature to that. So um, Obamacare repeal, as we know from the polling and as we know from the news, is still very much a live fire issue. But other, other than that um, discharge petition – uh, Congress would likely be ignoring it uh, as of now so that's an interesting story to be watching
0: yeah getting a little bit of work done over over recess I guess
1: well I'm not sure that's a good thing <laughs> you know I think the discharge petition that sort of happenstance that it, it ripened right I'm not sure it's a good thing that they're passing bills yeah. with members out of town yeah. that whole...
0: not exactly what you envisioned when you called for them to uh, hold off on recess until they got their work done
1: no no yeah. not yeah. at all and also I I think uh, I think they're going to be spending our money and, and changing our policies. They ought to they ought to be here for debate uh, and and uh, not just let a couple of members on the floor do the work of 435. That's not um, representation.
0: Agreed. Uh, so what else is going on in the world besides North Korea, which we'll be which we'll we will be touching on <laughs> shortly? Um, Vice President Pence is on another trip, Latin America.
1: Yes. Vice President Pence continues um, to travel to to uh, strategic locations. I think that the mm-hmm. State Department and the White House have done uh, really great work on mapping out both the president's and the vice president's travel. Um, and so he'll be in Latin America this week, uh, mm-hmm. Colombia, Argentina, Chile. Uh, that That's a a, a a really important news story to be paying attention to as well.
0: Yeah, and if you all want to get some good Heritage perspective on what to expect from his trip and things that he should be doing, check out Anna Quintana. She um, has done some great research on this. She's our Latin America expert. So go to Heritage.org and check that out for sure.
1: Speaking of travel and diplomats, I I, I did notice, I thought it was interesting that um, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, flew to Guam last week. I think it was like less than 24 hours after the threat um, that we're going to talk about in in the North Korea interview, um, I, I, I think that that's a really uh, great signal for America to be sending. And it's, it's one of those things that just makes you proud.
0: That is true. And on that note, I think we can go ahead and switch over to our interview with Bruce and Olivia.
1: Bruce Klinger is the senior research fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. Prior to joining Heritage in 2007, Bruce spent 20 years in the intelligence community uh, at both the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. From 1996 to 2001, Bruce was the CIA's deputy division chief for Korea. Um, he's done Yeoman's work on research for North Korea. He's been in talks with North Korean representatives, uh, knows a lot about the issue, has a, has an amazing perspective. Um, and Olivia Enos is a policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center. Uh, and she's here to talk with us about the human rights piece of this story, the, um, uh, the the human rights abuses that go on in North Korea. So we're happy to have both of them here. Let's roll the interview.
0: Bruce and Olivia, welcome to Mass Ave. Uh, We want to dive right in and start talking about North Korea today. Um, Starting, I guess, with Bruce, as the rhetoric heats up, many people are wondering what this means for the U.S. and the world. What would you say are the potential scenarios we're looking at, and what are the risks?
2: Well, I'd say there are two different scenarios, uh, sort of driven by the president's remarks uh, as well as North Korea's remarks. So we have North Korea threatening to launch uh, some intermediate-range ballistic missiles towards Guam. And then we also have the continuing talk by not only the president, but the national security advisor and others about whether sort of separate from that, the U.S. would be Considering a preventative attack on North Korea itself to prevent them from de- completing the development of an ICBM. So on the Guam potential attack, I, it's it wouldn't be an attack. Even though North Korea has used the word strike, There, it would be a very, very provocative attack. Uh, test or, or military demonstration where they'd be sending four missiles on either side of the, the Guam Island. So it uh, very provocative. it raises the question of whether the. US would try to intercept it with the ballistic missile defense systems on the island. Uh, and that could you know spin out to any number of scenarios. Uh, the preventative attack, the president had talked about, uh, if North Korea does another threat, a verbal threat even, then the U.S. will unleash fire and fury like the world has never seen. And he said that on the anniversary of the uh, Nagasaki bombing. So uh, whether that was a signal of a nuclear attack on North Korea, but subsequent to his comments, uh, a number of senior U.S. officials, uh, particularly over the weekend, seem to tamp down the potential for a U.S. attack. So right now, the the most likely uh, spark would be if North Korea does a missile launch towards Guam and the U.S. intercepts it, would North Korea retaliate to that interception?
1: Boy, there's there's a lot here, um, a lot of moving parts, a lot of breaking news over the last week or so. Let's unpack it a little bit. Um, two or three months ago, it was revealed, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was revealed that they had ICBM capabilities. Um, so now they've got a long-range missile Um, And then last week, we had basically three breaking stories. The first, if I'm not mistaken, was that we think they have miniaturized nuclear warheads uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of of 60 of those. Um, And then uh, there was the president's response um, to their threat, uh, the, the threat that you mentioned against Guam. Uh, Is that pretty much the lay of the
2: land? What are we missing in that story? Well, also before that uh, was the UN Security Council Ah. resolution vote, which by itself would have been a big story. Uh, Once again, we had a good if incremental uh, increase of UN pressure on North Korea, expanding of the sanctions. The question is always will China and other nations actually implement the new expanded required sanctions? Uh, That vote was on a Saturday and would have been a big media story that we all would have been following and talking about on the following Monday had not the Washington Post article come out revealing a a defense intelligence agency report saying that they think at least that one agency thinks North Korea has the ability to put a nuclear warhead on the ICBM. And as you pointed out, when North Korea did a test uh, in the end of July to a a ICBM, which had it been launched in a normal trajectory, it can reach Los Angeles, Denver, Chicago, perhaps New York and Washington. So uh, what I, I'm surprised though that people are surprised that North Korea has this capability. Uh, we've been predicting it for years. Uh, when I was in the intelligence community in the late 90s, we did a report where we thought by the year 2015, uh, North Korea would have this ability. Uh, it's an unclassified estimate. It's out there on the web somewhere. Uh, so we've known it's it's coming. It shouldn't be a surprise to people. but um, you know, until it really happens, then people seem shocked. Well, I, I think you're
1: right. Um, it, it is a bit of a surprise. Um, it, it, it also is it, its the kind of thing that just sounds alarming. Like, okay, now they've got it. Are they going to use it? Uh, so that kind of brings us to the next question. Um, many of us Americans, we're hearing this news, we're reacting to it, and we don't know quite what it means. Are we to live in fear now that they could bomb us at any time?
2: Um, where does this leave us? Well, having North Korea with nuclear weapons atop an ICBM capability and, and you know, any intelligence estimate, and I spent 20 years with the CIA and the DIA, um, it, it's our best estimate. It, it's based on information and you never have enough information working North Korea. So whether they have the capability today, tomorrow or next year, we, we know they're working towards that capability. Uh, So the timing itself is almost irrelevant. A number of people have thought, well, uh, if North Korea has the capability, we need to attack them to prevent them from completing that ICBM development. And I ask, well, okay, we live with, we don't like, but we live with a Russia and China that can hit us with nuclear weapons, but we don't attack them. And many people say, "Well, Kim Jong Un's crazy. He may just wake up some morning and push the button." Well, he, he's not crazy. Yes, he's a brutal, terrible dictator, uh, but he's not insane. He's not going to just wake up, you know, frothy-mouthed one morning in his bathrobe and hit the button. Uh, and then when I ask, "Okay, well, you know, I disagree with the the premise that he's crazy," and same with his father, that many people thought was crazy, and he, he wasn't. Um, And how would he he react if we were to initiate an attack on him beforehand, before the ICBM? And they'll say, well, he he knows, he'll know that he can't respond to the U.S. attack given the might of the U.S. military. It's like, oh, so a rational response. So it does seem to be a bit of a disconnect in the advocacy for a preventative attack, the idea of let's start a war to prevent a war.
0: And kind of looking at the response that Donald Trump has had to this. I know one of the things you said was that between him and Kim, it's you know kind of a trade-off of hold my beer. Do you think that we have had a sufficient response to this increasing threat, or um, is there anything that we should change about it?
2: Well, you know, words matter uh, in an international relations. So what we've seen, particularly in the last week, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and the CIA Director all make very firm, resolute statements about, if North Korea starts something, we will defend ourselves and we will defend our allies. So very strong uh, statements of, of intent, but in reaction to a North Korean attack. And then there's, as some of them have pointed out, preemption is always on the table. If we have credible intelligence that an opponent is about to attack us, we may make that very difficult decision to attack first. But that's different from attacking simply to prevent them from completing a weapons development. Um, So personally, I think a number of the president's comments were over the top. I think they were unhelpful. And the danger is that they are increasing our allies' nervousness about the uncertainty of what the U.S. may do. Uh, And then it also raises the risk that North Korea may miscalculate, and if they feel that they are about to be attacked, they may decide to lash out, even if we weren't actually about to attack. So, you know, when dealing with any very strong military opponent, you have to be very careful of the message you send, because it may not be the message they receive.
0: And... I guess I kind of want to also look, talk to Olivia here, because I know you have focused a lot on the human rights abuses going on in North Korea. And, and I do believe that this is probably one of the stories that is lost a lot in this rhetoric. Can you kind of give us a, a lay of the land? what What's going on with the human rights abuses there? And how does this kind of a standoff impact the people there?
3: Yeah, in light of North Korea's belligerent activities, the ICBM tests, I think it's really easy to lose sight of the human rights abuses that are ongoing there. Oftentimes people forget that you know the Commission of Inquiry report that the UN released a few years ago estimated that there are between 80,000 to 120,000 individuals in prison camps today. And not only do you have that, you have North Korea diverting um, resources that they could be using to help feed their people, and instead they're starving because they're spending upwards of $1.3 Dollars on their missile program or their nuclear program. And so I think that, you know, people also forget that there are Americans, three Americans that are still there, that may face the same fate as Otto Warmbier if we don't get them out. And so you have a a myriad of abuses against the North Korean people, but also against Americans as well. And this continues to go on. But I think at present, the Trump administration is so focused on sort of putting out the immediate fires, which, of course, makes sense. But they would be smart and would develop a more holistic policy toward North Korea if they also included human rights-related policies, and I think that there are a number of different policies that maybe they could look into doing, and I think this could be actually a unifying issue when you look at the U.S.-South Korea alliance because um, the new president there, President Moon Jae-in, he's a human rights lawyer. He has an interest in human rights issues, so this could be actually an issue that we could work on together as an alliance. There are a number of different things that we could pursue.
0: What are some of those uh, those suggestions that you would that you would give them? Yeah, absolutely. So right now Congress is considering the
3: North Korean Human Rights Act. And one of the things that the North Korean Human Rights Act would do is it would improve information access in North Korea. And when you improve information access in North Korea, you're giving the people of North Korea the information they need to decide whether they want to stay in North Korea and sort of create change from within or flee the regime and find freedom outside of North Korea's borders and beyond the 38th parallel. Um, And this is something that we could really easily up improve. Improving radio access, improving information uh, that gets into the regime through using um, SD drives or other USB drives. Um, and I think that that would be one really helpful step. Another one would be to actually increase the risk to individuals in North Korea to continue their human rights abuses by sanctioning those individuals. Um, under the Obama administration, you saw a round of designations where 10 people uh, were listed for their human rights abuses, but you never saw any follow up and this would be a really easy win i think for the trump administration to designate individuals who are overseeing prison camps who we know are active in perpetrating rights abuses against the north korean people so i think this could be a really great step
1: can i just clarify when we're talking about increasing information and doing usb drives are we talking about literally dropping usb i mean how would we how how does that work and then is does the regime view that as aggression
3: so I think that there are different ways of getting information into North Korea. Some are a little more aggressive than others. I would say that those the drops from the air are oftentimes less helpful because the regime can see when things drop from the air. So it's better if you can sort of smuggle them in through different routes. Um, in fact, the um, the informal economy that exists on the border of China and North Korea is one area where you would be able to get USB drives in. And a lot of NGOs and nonprofits already do that. But then also radio is another way. Of course, it is potentially threatening to individuals to listen to the radio. um, But a lot of people in North Korea found ways to do that. They've also watched television dramas and things that have also been smuggled in. And oftentimes when you meet and you talk with North Korean refugees, they say that the primary reason that they decided to defect from North Korea was because they had access to that information. Mm -hmm.
1: That's that is a really fascinating angle uh, on on this uh, on this issue, which is which is on all of our minds as Americans. Uh, Bruce, I want to come back to you just to um, look at this threat. And, and you mentioned uh, even the U.S.'s actions in this are are, are unpredictable at this time. Um, your mindset, I think, is is right to save preemption for an imminent threat. How will we know when a threat is imminent? And, and how do you handicap um, how the U.S. is going to react to this, it, especially in the scenario where North Korea goes through with the Guam demonstration?
2: How will we react to that? Well, getting information on North Korea, it, it's – on the one hand, it's not a black hole where we know nothing about it. On the other hand, it is – it is what we called in the intelligence community the hardest of the hard targets. So each of the sources of information, imagery and signals intelligence uh, and human intelligence have almost unique or particular troubles or, or constraints in dealing with North Korea. So uh, the men and women in the intelligence community are doing the best job they can. And it's an extremely difficult intelligence problem. And, and our knowledge varies by topics. We, we know a lot about their conventional forces – uh, we know little about leadership intentions. That's you're trying to get into the mind of of the leader, uh, and then knowing exactly how many nuclear weapons or how sophisticated is extremely difficult. So you you do the best you can, but uh, for a preemptive attack. Uh, there are different scenarios. If they were wanted to ensure a, a more successful invasion, they would need to mobilize units, bring more logistics, uh, support elements further down near the demilitarized zone. Any of that would be observable. So uh, you know, you, you'd have warning time prior to a big preparation for an invasion. On the other end, if it's a conventional invasion, a bolt from the blue. With little preparation, well, then that's going to inflict terrible damage on uh, South Korea and the U.S. forces there. But it's less likely to have the power to make it all the way to the to the bottom of the peninsula. Uh, Others, uh, other scenarios would be a missile launch towards South Korea or towards the U.S., perhaps tipped with nuclear weapons. That is when you're looking through with all your intelligence sources, particularly imagery, for now mobile missiles that North Korea has developed, and those are are hard to find. That's why the countries make mobile missiles, so imagine kind of that poor intelligence analyst bursting into the Oval Office saying, Mr. President, I have what I think is really good intelligence of a number of missiles, I think I've identified them all, uh, and we think that they are tipped with nuclear weapons rather than practice warhead or conventional warhead, and we think the leadership intention is to attack rather than a political signal or a routine military exercise Over to you, Mr. President. And then the president, any president, has that very difficult decision of, is the information good enough that I will start a war? Nightmare. Exactly.
1: Um, All right. Here's a two-part question for both of you in in your respective sort of viewpoints. We have allies in the region. We've got South Korea and Japan. And then there's China uh, that has more influence perhaps over North Korea than anybody else. What are their roles in preventing – uh, aggression from North Korea, and then Olivia on, on the human rights front.
2: Well, of the three countries you mentioned, there' a very obvious uh, division between the two. So our allies, South Korea and Japan, they share our concerns. Uh, they share the danger that that we do from the North Korean military threat. Uh, and we are working very closely together in order to deter and, if necessary, defend and defeat any kind of North Korean aggression. So uh, the three countries really are working very well together. The alliances are very, very strong uh, and there's a lot of diplomatic interaction amongst the three countries to ensure we're all on the on the same page. Uh, China is part of the problem, not part of the solution. They're an ally of North Korea. Uh, and they've been very reluctant to impose any real pressure on North Korea. They've incrementally they've they have increased pressure, but they still are turning a blind eye to North Korean proliferation and uh, illicit acti- activities occurring on their soil. so, on the one hand, we can try to continue to cajole, or implore, or pressure China to do more on North Korea, but there also there's a lot we can do using our U, the U.S. laws, where um, because the majority of all international financial transactions in the world are denominated in dollars, they have to go through our banks, and that means Chinese violators that are facilitating North Korea's uh, nuclear missile programs are using our bank, misusing our banks, and we can impose sanctions on them. Uh, using our own laws, and we don't need the permission of Beijing to do that.
3: I think there are a lot of issues with how China relates to North Korea when it comes to human rights issues – I think, first of all, the U.S. should continue to call China out for forcibly repatriating North Korean refugees. Actually, at this moment, there are 15 North Korean refugees in China that China is considering repatriating. And if they're sent back, particularly if they're Christian or if they had um, contact with anyone from South Korea, they will almost certainly be sent at least to a prison camp, if not to a political prison camp. Um, and they will face persecution and unimaginable hardship upon repatriation. China is violating international law when they send those North Korean refugees back. So the international community does have a responsibility to call them out for violating uh, those laws. When it comes to U.S. and South Korea, South Korea has only recently sort of taken note of some of the human rights abuses going on in North Korea. Um, just a couple of years ago, they passed their own version of the North Korean Human Rights Act, which was a positive step forward. But considering that most Koreans consider North Koreans to actually be of the same blood and, and almost of the same people group. Um, it it seems as though the individuals in South Korea should be more outspoken when it comes to human rights abuse and when it comes for caring for the 30,000-plus defectors that live within its borders.
0: And I guess we'll wrap it up on that note. Um, we'll be keeping an eye on this situation, obviously. But Bruce and Olivia, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for having us.
0: Thank that you for having us.
1: Fascinating and, and important as... All of us are are losing sleep over this uh, as Americans. Thank you very much for all your hard work on this issue and for being here on Mass App.
0: Well, that was great.
1: Yeah, I thought that was awesome. I think, um, you know, it's one of those things where you can watch the news and be completely confused or scared. um, And, you know, Bruce breaks it down for us. Olivia has... um, a perspective that we need to make sure we don't miss in this story. I'm really glad we had both of them on.
0: Yeah, really glad. Bruce has been doing a media blitz over the past week or so, so I'm really glad he was able to fit us into Yeah, we're
1: right up there with Fox News right. and CNN. I and, know. And MSNBC,
0: F. CNN, yep. And MassF. And Mass so, you So know,
1: he can add us to his resume yep. now. That's awesome. Um, we've got a product at the Heritage Foundation I want to tell you about. It's a weekly newsletter. It comes to your email. It's called The Agenda. What it does is it takes – Items that are in the news and combines it with conservative policy solutions. So, just like we do here on Mass Ave, something makes the news like North Korea or tax reform or Obamacare repeal or a Trump tweet, and then we talk about the policy behind it. Um, that's what the agenda is. Sign up for it on our website. Um, It it also will give you uh, information about important events happening here at Heritage. So if you want to follow along that way, um, that's in the agenda, too. Uh, It comes Tuesdays. It's an email you're going to look forward to. It's an email you're going to want to open every time you get it. Sign up for it on Heritage.org.
0: And that is it for our show today. Uh, Thanks for listening in. Remember to subscribe to Mass Ave on iTunes so you can never miss what's happening on the Hill and around the world. Also check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill.